everybody. Hi. <laughs> How's everyone doing? Good. Yeah. Welcome. Uh, my name is Nina Mamakunian. I'm the librarian for literature and 30 and dance here at Geisel Library. Welcome to the library. Um, I'm also curator for our archive for new poetry. Um, and what's really exciting about that is that we archive these readings. We record them and archive in the catalog for you to listen to after the reading. Um, I bring that up because we have microphones for the Q&A afterwards. So if you have a question for our reader, um, please wait for us to bring you a microphone to ask your question. Um, just a couple other things. I want to point out that the restrooms and water fountain are in the back. Um, if you do need to leave the reading early, please use the back door, whichever door is going to be least disruptive to the reading. Um, I'd like everybody to pull out their cell phones and put them on silent, please. Thank you. <laughs> um, I'd also like to, to thank um, Sage from the bookstore for being here and for selling copies of Tender Points for us today. Um, and I'd also like to thank our wonderful reader, Amy Berkowitz, for being here today. We're very excited. And with that, I'm going to bring up Professor Kazamali. Okay, hi everyone. I'm really excited for tonight's reading. I want to thank, of course, Nina and the library for their co-sponsorship of the new writing series. It's been great to work with um, with you all. Um, and I took over the new writing series just last year. And when I was brainstorming about who I wanted to bring, like what my dream list was going to be, I'm sure if you had that chance yourself in your brain, you might immediately think of a poet that you love, that you would love to hear, or a writer that you love, that you would love to hear and bring here. So it's kind of a joyful exercise to actually have that chance. And Amy's name was one of the people that immediately... Um, popped into my head as someone who I wanted to bring in my very first year. The way I discovered, I'd never met Amy before today, in fact, and the way I discovered her work was that I was in San Francisco, and I was just, I don't know why I was there, I was doing a reading or something like that, and several different people in casual conversations mentioned this book to me. It had just come out, and it was published by a very small and local press called Timeless Infinite Light. And Timeless Infinite Light was just a group of people who got together and decided that they loved the type of poetry and the type of writing that they loved they weren't seeing enough of, and they decided they wanted to put it out in the world. And I have had that same experience myself because I myself founded a press called Nightboat Books precisely for that reason, because there was work that I loved that I wasn't seeing represented, that I wasn't seeing out there. And so... Um, I was, I, I'd heard about Amy, and then I was in dog-eared books on Valencia, and I saw on the staff recommendations shelf this book, and I picked it up, and the, the books out, the guy behind the counter said, uh, hey, do you know that book? And I said, well, I don't really know anything about it, except that all these people have been talking to me about it and telling me I have to read it. And he said to me, the bookseller said, yeah, it's this is an amazing book. It's so powerful. It's so strong. And you really need to read it. And so I bought it, and I took it home, and I read it. But this is, and it, it seized my imagination, of course. And that was um, many, many years ago. Uh, came out in 2015, so that was a good four years ago, because it was newly out at that time. But this puts me in the mind of what I was talking to you about in the beginning, which is that this book came to me not because it popped up on my Amazon and not because it was on the shelf at the bookstore or at the Barnes & Noble or because the writer was on like a, 
you know, the radio or something like that. It came to me through small press and it came to me through community literary activism. And that's actually what we're doing. And so this series is like only one example of that because at the beginning I mentioned to you that if you could think in your own brain of some writer you love that you would want to see here, it's like, you, we can do that. You can do that. We can collaborate. You can let me know who you'd like to see. Um, there are series on the, There's money on this campus to bring people. Just before the event, Nina was telling me about, like, oh, there is this guy he wants to bring, uh, this poet that he loves, so can we try to figure it out and work with him? So you, too, are literary citizens, and you, too, are literary activists. If you, you can choose not to be and not put the time and effort towards create, publishing, curating, inviting poets, but truly that's part of what being a writer in 2019 America is like, because there's maybe like 10 or 12 people that the corporate world, publishing world, flings at us, and then there's the rest of us who are writing and producing great works of art, and Amy's one of those people, and I'm frankly one of those people too, and so are, and so are, and so are all of you one of those people as well. Okay, so... That was my soapbox, and I'm so. And it, as as my way of explaining to you why I am so excited to bring Amy, and doubling as my challenge to you to think about who would you like to see, who excites you that we can work on bringing. Okay, and so I'm super excited to introduce Aidan Larue, who's going to do the actual introduction of Amy Berkowitz. Thanks, Kazem. Um, it's so funny that you mentioned Dog Eater because I was just in San Francisco last weekend and I had read Amy's book and I was like, I must get my own copy now. And I went to two locations of Dog Eater books and they're both sold out because this book is so popular and this is from Amy's home turf. So anyways, I just thought that was a fun little note. Um, so for many years, going to the doctor entailed the same series of measurements, blood pressure, pulse, respiratory rate, and body temperature. These make up what we know as the vital signs, the things that indicate to doctors and nurses everywhere that a human, a body, is alive. These numbers of systolic and diastolic pressure, degrees, beats per minute, breaths per minute, are legible. They're demonstrations to physicians that we're healthy or unhealthy, well or unwell. In 2001, a fifth vital sign was added to the list, pain. We've all felt it in varying degrees, physically and emotionally, I'm sure. Um, we've become accustomed to that irritatingly imprecise question, what's your pain on a scale of 1 to 10? I am as much baffled by this number system as I am a believer that it's validating and a necessary inquiry. Pain was revoked from its consideration as the fifth vital sign just one year later because it was seen as a symptom of a problem rather than a measurement of our essential body, bodily functions. Pain was not necessary, even if it is inevitable. Of course, the ubiquity of asking what, what's your pain on the scale of 1 to 10 stuck and is perhaps part of why we're now facing an epidemic of addiction to painkillers. But regardless of how reductive the pain scale might seem, this denial of pain being a vital sign seems very significant to me in a number of ways, first of which is the very vitality of pain. 
By this, I mean to say that pain connects us to the pith of existence, to drive and direction and purpose, as much as it also has the power to disconnect us from those very things. Second, it's quite symbolic that pain was removed from the set of vital signs because women's pain has been denied and ignored historically. Because any non-cis, non-straight, non-white person's pain is regularly made invisible or forced to be tucked away for the comfort of others, and therefore made less reliable and less often believed. Just as women, queer and trans folk, people of color, and alter-abled people have been treated as non-essential for so long, their pain has also been dismissed. And this is what Amy Berkowitz, the author visiting us today from San Francisco, attends to in her insurrectionary book, Tender Points. With perspicacious and obs observation and poise, Berkowitz offers an unraveling of her own struggle with fibromyalgia, which rose to the surface alongside memories of suppressed sexual trauma. Her title makes beautiful use of the dual meaning, tender being both gentle and sore and refers to the 18 tender points on the body that are used to assess fibromyalgia, um, something that has long been seen as mysterious by the medical community. Berkowitz's book is fragmented but not fractured. It's nonlinear but does not lose anything in the cracks of space and time. She roves between the widow of the Winchester Rifle Company, the art of Mike Kelly, cultural theory from Lauren Berlant, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Live Journal, Little Red Riding Hood, The Riddle of the Sphinx. And while these might seem like an arbitrary parts of a litany, all these elements help refract how we understand not just Berkowitz's experience of pain, but the subject in general. She calls upon canonical texts from Susan Sontag and Elaine Scarry, while also extending these crucial lines of thought in her own work. Berkowitz's writing is expansive. It looks inward and outward simultaneously. Trauma is unceasing as a horizon, and yet I felt some spaciousness in her prose. In the most chilling and climactic vignette of her book, she imagines a series of paintings she might make. The images are simple. Two women floating on rafts in a lake with a bird's eye view. Two women sitting at a table with a nearly empty cheese plate between them and the same bird's eye perspective. Two women in a coffee shop. Two women in a bar. They could be any place, really, as long as there are two women sitting with each other. Two women having a picnic in the park. Two women on a hike. Two women at a reading. Each of the paintings would have the same title, Brilliant Women Talking About Rape Again instead of talking about their art or any other topic. It is through this title and these descriptions of hypothetical paintings that Berkowitz constellates the all-too-common experience of sexual violence and how it imposes itself into our lived experience, forcing out our conversations about screenplays, literary magazines, musical experiments, neighbors, ideologies. In an essay about the pain scale, Eula Biss points out that we don't measure the duration of pain. We solely focus on the intensity of it in the moment. She says, once for a study of chronic pain, I was asked to rate not just my pain, but also my suffering. I rated my pain as a three. Having been sleepless for nearly a week, I rated my suffering as a seven. This continues, hospice nurses are trained to identify five types of pain, physical, emotional, spiritual, social, and financial. The pain of feeling, the pain of caring, the pain of doubting, 
the pain of parting, the pain of paying. The ultimate project of tender points is to add dimensionality to the linearity of the pain scale, to invoke the nonlinearity in the tangles of time and trauma. This lyric essay form Berkowitz is using allows her to be limber as she addresses these five realms of pain and excavates further into others, the aches of longing, of learning, of trying, and of living. Please join me in welcoming Amy Berkowitz. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for such a beautiful and thoughtful introduction. Like, I think you've thought more about that, uh, women talking about rape essay more than I have, which is great. I mean, not that I haven't thought carefully about it, but that was, you went in there. You added a picnic. I like that. Um, and thank you also, Cosm, for your own beautiful and thoughtful introduction and for bringing me here. I'm really happy to be here. Um, so tonight I'm going to read from Tender Points, um, which just got re-released by Nightboat Books. Um, and the Nightboat Books edition has an afterword that I wrote on the occasion of the reprint four years after the original edition. And when Stephen from Nightboat suggested that I write an afterword, I was like, it's only been four years. Like, what perspective do I have in four years? And then I thought about it, and I actually have a lot. Um, so I'm excited to share a little bit of that with you. So I'll read first from Tender Points, then from the afterword, and then I'm going to share uh, an excerpt from the novel that I'm working on now. And I'm really excited because tonight um, this is the longest excerpt from it that I've ever shared. It's not that long, don't worry. But um, I've just been able to share these bits of it. So I'm excited about that. Um, we are going to go there. Um, specifically, when I say that, I mean as a content warning, both of these projects take on sexual assault and childhood sexual abuse. So please, if you need to step out or tune out or anything, take care of yourself and thank you for going there with me. So I will start with some selections from Tender Points. Every morning I wake up feeling like I was run over by a truck. I feel like I've been hit by a bus. I wake up feeling like I got whiplash. I wake up feeling like I slept on the floor. I wake up feeling like I've been chewed up and spit out. Multiple alarms and I always feel like I've been run over by a truck. The Sphinx's riddle. What goes on four legs at dawn, two legs at noon, and three legs in the evening? I don't particularly like riddles, but then again, neither did travelers passing through Thebes. They didn't try to solve the Sphinx's riddle because they craved the intellectual challenge. They tried to solve it because the Sphinx killed anyone who didn't. I don't like riddles, and yet here I am, obsessed with solving a riddle of my own, the riddle of my body. Why exactly am I constantly in pain? Like the Sphinx's riddle, mine is not a brain teaser. It's not Sudoku. It's not something you do on the bus to make the ride feel shorter. Like her riddle, mine has a greater urgency. In The Culture of Pain, David B. Morris criticizes medical literature for its tradition of approaching pain as a riddle to be answered, a challenge to be met, a puzzle to be solved. He rejects this language of conquest and asks us instead to 
consider in what sense pain might be regarded not as a puzzle, but as a mystery. While a puzzle can be solved with just one or two missing pieces, pain is much more complicated, and talking about pain, especially chronic pain, as if it has an easy answer, can be irresponsibly deceptive. Morris suggests that by understanding pain as a mystery, we can respect its complexity and recognize the alienating experience of living in pain. Mysteries, he writes, introduce us to unusual states of being. Mysteries disturb the world we take for granted. An invisible illness with uncertain causes and imprecise diagnostic criteria, fibromyalgia is largely defined by its mystery. And yet, when the onset of this pain follows a traumatic event, as it often does, it's hard not to understand that trauma as a certain kind of key, to hold that key in a palm made sweaty by too much coffee, to never put it down for the feeling that, at any moment, it could completely unlock the mystery and solve the problem of your pain. Two at the bottom of the neck just above the collarbone, two just below the center of each collarbone, one on the crease inside each elbow, two more on the inside of each knee. On the back of the body, two at the bottom of the neck, one above each shoulder blade and just inside each shoulder blade, two on either side of the lower spine, two more on the outer part of each hamstring. In order to be diagnosed, the patient must experience discomfort in at least 11 of 18 tender points designated by the American College of Rheumatology. I agree that pain is something more complex and unknowable than a puzzle. And yet, when it comes to the mystery of my pain, I can't resist the impulse to solve it. I have all these pieces and I can't stop my hands from wanting to jam them together until some sense emerges. When I think about my clues, they're inside a wicker basket that I'm carrying through the woods. It's nighttime. It's quiet. I realize that, for some reason, I am Little Red Riding Hood. Why? I should be thinking of Nancy Drew or Harriet the Spy, some story about a girl detective, not about a girl waylaid in the woods. But to solve this kind of mystery, it seems, you need to walk alone into a forest. You need to walk until you meet a wolf. Throughout pop culture, Little Red Riding Hood's wolf is read as a sexual predator, from Sam the Sham's seductive canine to Susan Brownmiller's rapist. I have a wolf in my story, but he will not interrupt my walk through the forest, which is to say he's already interrupted it. He's the reason I'm here, sorting out the aftermath, which is to say the wolf is eternally interrupting my walk through the forest, emerging from behind the same tree again and again to block my path. Imagine, imagine it repeating like a gif. My little red riding hood has no granny in the woods. She has no treats in her basket. Her basket is for gathering clues. A handful of fur or a whisker she yanks from his face. Could be DNA tested later. Acutely traumatized people are generally dominated by the sympathetic fight-flight system. They tend to suffer from flashbacks and racing hearts. Peter Levine in 1989, Kathleen Hanna traveled to Seattle to take a writing workshop with Kathy Acker. Acker asked Hanna why she wanted to write, and Hanna said, because nobody has ever listened to me in my whole life, and I have all this stuff I want to say. Acker replied, then why are you doing spoken word? You should be in a band. Nobody goes to spoken word, but people go to see bands. 
We know how the story ends. Hannah goes home and starts Bikini Kill, the legendary punk band largely, largely responsible for pioneering the riot girl movement and changing the face of feminism. It's worth noting that it's particularly difficult for a woman's voice to command respect. To quote Kathleen Hannah again, there's this certain assumption that when a man tells the truth, it's the truth. And when, as a woman, I go to tell the truth, I feel like I have to negotiate the way I'll be perceived. There's always the suspicion around a woman's truth, the idea that you're exaggerating. Drug approved, is disease real? This was the title of a New York Times article about fibromyalgia published the year I was diagnosed. As I read more about the history of invisible illness, I'm surprised and amused to diagnose myself with hysteria. They're just nasty fat women who want to collect disability checks. Doing stuff makes me tired. Give me some money and or drugs. Lazy ass slugs who sit at home and watch Judge Judy while the rest of the world works for a living. 71% of them are fat women who don't ever get off their ass. Sorry if you don't like facts. Anyone who can read an internet article and say ow 11 times can have it. Fibromyalgia is largely defined by a lack of visible symptoms or identifying lab tests. The only diagnostic criteria are the frustratingly vague tender points. Press here and I'll tell you if it hurts. Now press here. Now press here. All I have to do is tell you. All you have to do is believe what I tell you. I have to deal with these nutcases at work and I flat out call them fakers to their face. They need to get up off their lard asses and get a job. They're just whiny people who love to be sick. I knew a woman with it. She was miserable and had a whole MySpace dedicated to the constant pain. At the Vital Forum Symposium in 2013, Melissa Bezeo asked questions. Why people who are sick are also looked at as waste products in society? Why people, especially women, especially sick women, do not want to draw too much attention to themselves? What does it mean to talk about yourself? Welcome to the MySpace of my constant pain. I'm 21 years old and I feel like I'm 50. I'm 50, I feel like I'm 90. I am only 22, and I feel like I'm 60 or 70 years old. I feel like I'm in my 80s, but I'm only 46. People in my life may think I'm exaggerating, but I am truly in pain. The story of my pain is not an easy story to tell, and I'm not talking about the emotional difficulty of telling it. I mean, the plot itself is confusing. Trauma is nonlinear. There are flashbacks and flash forwards, and my story is a story about forgetting. Forgetting is one of the main characters. In fact, he may be the hero. Forgetting swoops down on a rope to rescue me right after my rape. He holds me with his free arm as we swing back to safety, saying, you can't handle this right now, but you'll remember when you're 23, and you'll have better psychological defenses then and a good therapist. If forgetting is the hero of the story, who is memory? And what happens to memory in the end? The police asked if I was lying. The police said he was a good boy. The police said I was making it up. The police asked me why I was alone there. The police kept yelling at me. The police denied my request for a female detective, which I later found out was violating procedure. 
The police did nothing. This cruel abuse of power is sickeningly common, and yet there's this part of me that wishes my own rape had at least had a chance at something that might pass for justice. But when a ghost rapes you, there's no event to report, no one to report it to. It's up to you to perform your own cruel interrogation. I asked myself if I was lying. I told myself I was making it up. I asked myself, why were we alone in the exam room? I asked myself, why were we alone in the exam room? I told myself, maybe what he did really was normal, and maybe I'm a pervert for remembering it wrong. I kept yelling at myself. I did nothing. I keep having this vision of my body shot through with systems of hidden stairs and hallways, secret, steep, ill-maintained servants' quarters. Imagine that the stairs climb up my arm and neck and lead to doors in and out my ears, then back down the other arm. In these dim, drafty passages, memories creep through my body right next to present perceptions. After the death of her husband, Sarah Winchester used her share of the Winchester rifle fortune to build a sprawling and peculiar mansion to appease the spirits of the vast number of people killed by her husband's rifles. Convinced that the spirits would murder her if she ever stopped construction, Sarah hired workers to build around the clock so that the house would never be complete. This continued for 36 years until her death in 1922. Most people with fibromyalgia experience non-restorative sleep. That is, no matter how long they sleep, they wake up feeling tired. Like many things about fibromyalgia, the cause of the sleep disorder is unknown, but many doctors believe that the problem starts with a constant activation of the sympathetic nervous system's fight-or-flight response, which increases nocturnal vigilance and prevents restful sleep. What vigil is my sympathetic nervous system keeping? It seems to be supervising construction of a mansion designed to ward off evil spirits. It's building secret passages inside my body to root the past around the present and keep trauma out of sight, like servants in a smoothly running household. The act and the words that excused it. You're older now, so I have to do this. The problem is you can't put pain on trial. Ashley Brim, January 10th, 2015, 1.36 p.m., track changes comment. I read that the haunted Winchester house is a myth, that Sarah actually just had a lot of money, was an architect, and liked her workers, who would be out of a job if she ever stopped building. With her continuous projects, they just lived with their families on the grounds and around the house. She was very brilliant, ran her own company, and had many inventions. This image of her as a crazy woman was just patriarchy condemning her because she never remarried and she lived her life like a man, traveling and running a company. But don't change this. This fits well here. And there is no right story. So that's that. Um. I, I got distracted by you. That's, I shouldn't be distracted by it. It's so awkward. Okay. Um, I hope you're archiving this. Um, so I'm just going to read the beginning of the afterword that I wrote. Um, I, I was going to start explaining it, but it kind of explains itself. 
When I started writing Tender Points in 2013, my experience of pain was a lonely one. Friends and partners did their best to understand, but I didn't know anyone else living with chronic pain. I was isolated from other chronically ill people and survivors of assault, so my pain and my assault felt like personal problems I needed to sort out. That's why I started writing the book. What I didn't know when I started writing, what I didn't know I could even hope for, was that the process of researching, writing, and reading from tender points would eventually connect me to other sick people and survivors and introduce me to sick and disabled communities. In researching my book, I encountered voices that made me feel less alone. Carolyn Lazard's essay, How to Be a Person in the Age of Autoimmunity, was the first time I saw a writer draw connections between chronic illness and capitalism, and the first time I saw a writer describe doctors' failures to understand or treat their illness. In Cine Anderson's documentary, The Punk Singer, I encountered Kathleen Hanna's anger and vulnerability around Lyme disease, as well as footage of her, of her haunting early career performance piece about childhood sexual abuse. I remember reading from my manuscript at the Long Hall in Berkeley. After the reading, an audience member asked if they could give me a hug. I've never met anyone else with fibromyalgia before, they explained. And then I realized, neither had I. Writing a book about fibromyalgia had led me to making a friend with fibromyalgia. I was starting to feel less alone in my pain. Okay, so... Now, here's where I'm going to like stumble over myself because I haven't read this out loud before. And am I making it worse by telling you that it's going to be bad? It's going to be fine. So, um, <laughs> so this is from my novel, which is not quite done yet. Um, it's written, but I'm in the revision stage. It is tentatively titled Utopia and Other Problems. And it takes on some of the same themes as Tender Points. It addresses disability and it addresses sexual assault, but from very different angles. And, you know, it's a novel, so in very different ways. Um, so what I'm interested in exploring in this novel is the ways that well-meaning friends fuck up when their friends are sexually assaulted. Um, you know, the Me Too movement has done so much to advance the conversation around sexual assault, but there are certain topics that still aren't receiving much attention, and I'm interested in exploring those topics. There's a conversation going on about the harm done by rapists, of course, and there's a conversation about the harm done by people who shame survivors of rape and people who blame them and don't believe them, but there's not so much of a conversation about the harm done to survivors by people with good intentions, by well-meaning friends. I'll read two sections from the middle of the novel. Here's what you need to know to understand what's going on. Um, the protagonist is a poet named Ruth. She has betrayed her best friend, a poet named Lee. Ruth has betrayed Lee by telling all their friends about something Lee wanted to keep a secret, which is that Lee was raped by a man in their community a year before. Um, also, Ruth has fibromyalgia. This first scene starts just as Ruth and Lee arrive in New York to start a poetry tour together. Unfortunately, they planned this tour, and then Ruth betrayed Lee, and they still have to go on the tour and be in a car together for a week. Um, so this is just at the beginning. The flight was fine. No turbulence. And we got to New York half an hour early. We took a cab to my parents' apartment on the Upper East Side. As soon as we stepped inside, my parents came at us with hugs. 
They liked Lee. They'd known her for a long time. My mom led us to the kitchen. Your father went a little crazy at Trader Joe's, she said. She opened the fridge and the freezer to show us. Help yourself. I tore the plastic wrap from a family-sized multigrain lasagna and put it in the toaster oven. The dining room table was prepared for company. All the newspapers had been gathered into one neat pile, and there was a beige linen placemat at every seat. My mom poured peanut butter, peanut butter pretzels from a clear plastic barrel into a decorative bowl and nudged the bowl towards Lee. So, Ruthie says you have a new book, she said. Lee grinned. It's true. I wrote a book. I can't believe I wrote a book. Do you have one with you? asked my dad. Of course she does, I said, rolling my eyes. We're on tour. My mom frowned. Lee, we would love to see your book. Could you show us a copy? Only if it's not a pain in the butt to unpack. Lee went to get a book. My dad reached for a pretzel. What will you be reading from, he asked. I paused. I didn't know if I wanted to mention the zine or any of my writing on disability. My parents have trouble understanding that I'm disabled, which is painful because it means they have trouble understanding me. For them, disabled is a wheelchair or a cane or a hearing aid, something they can recognize and understand. And I have no such signifier, just chronic pain and fatigue. They know about the jobs I've quit, the events I've missed, the mornings I couldn't get out of bed, but that doesn't look like disability to them. They like to understand my condition is temporary, my problems as isolated incidents. And I get it. They did everything they could to raise a healthy person, and I look like a healthy person, so we might as well agree that I'm a healthy person. The last time I'd visited, my dad was excited to share some building gossip. There was, he said, a man on the fifth floor who walked with crutches, but, and here's where things got interesting, he didn't use the crutches all the time. My dad believed he'd caught our neighbor in some kind of insurance fraud scheme. He told me this in the kitchen while I was pouring myself a cup of coffee. My hands started to tremble, and I put the mug down on the counter. Just because someone doesn't use crutches all the time doesn't mean they don't need them. I tried to keep my voice calm and even. That man is the same as me. When you say you think he's lying about his disability, it's like you think I'm lying too. Better not to mention the zine. I don't know yet, I said. I might read some poems or part of an essay. I'm sure whatever you read will be excellent, said my dad, smiling warmly. He had pretzel flakes caught in his short gray beard. Lee came back with a copy of her book. Let me see, said my mom, putting her glasses on. She read the title out loud, Desire Trails. Ooh, what a name, said my dad, hitting the table lightly with his fist. God damn, that's a good name. Thanks, said Lee. My mom handed the book back to her. Would you read us a poem? The bell rang, and I got up to take the lasagna out. When I came back in, Lee was shyly reading aloud to my parents. After she finished, my mom raised one hand to her heart. Lee, honey, that was very beautiful, but I'm ashamed to tell you I don't know what any of it meant. Lee smiled. It's not necessarily about one fixed meaning. It's as much about the sound as it is about anything. I think I understand it, said my dad. Then what was it about, asked my mom. It was about a tree, and there was a storm, and the tree was sort of tossed around. My dad raised his arms and waved them in a strikingly realistic pantomime of branches swaying in strong wind. That's right, said Lee. But I still feel like I'm missing a deeper, a deep, I still feel like I'm missing a deeper meaning, said my mom. 
I think it's because I'm a math and science person. Don't worry about it, said Lee. Yeah, I said, serving the lasagna. There's no right way to understand a poem. You just let it wash over you. So then they go to Boston, they go to Amherst, they do a reading back in New York, and now they're in Philly. Um, they're there because Lee was invited to do a reading at a prestigious university reading series, and that's actually why Ruth and Lee planned the tour to begin with, because she had that date to plan around. When I arrived, the room was already mostly full. I saw Lee up in the front row. She looked so professional and polished, holding her book in her lap. I was proud of her. Her poetry was so singular, so strange and emotional and non-human, and she'd finally done the work of putting it all together into a book, a real book. And she was so brave to be giving these readings, especially as someone who prefers being around trees to being around people, who hates being in front of an audience under a spotlight. And she was going to be under a literal spotlight tonight, standing at a tall brush steel lectern. The host introduced her and then she read from her book beautifully, fluidly, under a spotlight so glaring it must have felt hot. She fed the audience pieces of information between poems the way she'd started doing in Somerville. Like, this next poem is about madrone trees, which shed their bark as a natural cycle, and about the human tendency to think the shedding is a sign of disease. I love it when poets do that. It gives you a foothold, a way in, a place to grasp what's going on in the poem. Otherwise, sometimes the poem just sounds like words, and while I guess that's enough, the whole let it wash over you thing, for me, to be honest, that's not enough. Because she was the only reader, she had a longer time to read. Instead of reading selection, she read most of the book from beginning to end. Listening to it this way, I perceived its full arc of life, destruction, and rebirth. The drought came in and destroyed everything, but there was hope at the end. You couldn't deny that. The sprouts that branch from burnt-out redwoods reaching up. Lee read, Light green stalks reach up from dead trees. My dance teacher corrects me, not an arm, but a reach. I recognized that line. I was there for that dance class. The will, the desire in that, the significance of that subtle correction from noun to verb. This will be my last poem, she said, and started reading the poem that ends the book, a poem about rain. I was blown away by her poise. She so, she so often shrinks from attention. I was so happy and proud of her for holding space under that hot light. I should have brought flowers for her, I thought. Ugh, I'm a jerk for not thinking of it. Well, maybe not. Maybe flowers would have been too much. If she wasn't mad at me, I could have brought flowers, but now it would feel like I was trying too hard, trying to redeem myself with a grand gesture of apology, which maybe I should be making a grand gesture of apology. Oh, well, it was too late. I hadn't brought any flowers. After the reading, we went to a brewery nearby. The Lit Mag students bought Lee a few rounds of beer, and she was giddy in the cab back to Sophia's. Everyone's been so nice, she said. It's wild that, like, the book I wrote makes people feel things. It's so amazing to talk to people about it. That's great, I said. It went so well. What? Nope. That's not... Someone told me about an environmental arts residency in New Orleans, and Michael invited me to propose a panel at an eco-poetics conference. She looked out the window at the city lights. All this stuff I never even thought about. Sophia had set up an air mattress for us in her study, a small room off the kitchen. The inflatable bed took up most of the room. I sat down next to Lee. This is surprisingly comfortable. 
right, she said. It's a fancy one. I was holding the cancer journals in my lap, but I wasn't ready to read. Hey, I said, are we okay? Lee put down the book she was holding. I don't know, she said. She took off her glasses and put them on the windowsill. When she looked at me, her eyes looked so big. She looked vulnerable and tired. I'm sorry, I said. The phrase felt empty. I knew it wasn't enough. I didn't know what else to say. I just don't understand how you, why you would do that to me. You know I'd never write about Ian like that. You know I'd never want people to know about something so personal. It's like, did you want to hurt me? Of course I didn't. You don't care how people feel. You just do what you want to do. I'm sorry. I looked down at the pattern on the sheets, ugly interlocking yellow and blue shapes. I just don't feel like I can trust you, Lee said. And that's so fucked up. Her face turned red and she wiped tears from her eyes with the back of her hand. Here we are, I thought, on this island of an air mattress. Trust is what brought us here. Trust is what built our whole friendship. And if trust's gone, what's left? And what are we doing here? I tried to sort out my feelings, organize them in a way Lee could understand. It came from a place of trying to do the right thing. I don't know if you can believe that, but it did. I glanced at her to gauge her reaction, but her face was blank. I've been thinking about it a lot, I continued tentatively, and I think the reason I named Ian is because that's what I wish someone had done for me when I was a kid. I had this impulse to protect you because no one was there to protect me. At the end of the sentence, my voice started to break, but I was determined not to let myself cry, not to take up space with my tears when this conversation was about the pain I caused Lee. I took a deep breath and steadied myself. Lee spoke slowly, choosing her words. I'm sorry that happened, okay? She took a moment to look at me with her tired eyes. I am really sorry that happened to you. But in this context, this sounds so fucked up, but in this context, I do not care. Because you know who else told me that? Ian. She dropped his name like a heavy weight. She pulled her knees to her chest and curled into a ball. I don't think I told you this, she continued, but after that day at his apartment, I emailed him to say, hey, you know, you really hurt me and you really can't treat people this way. Please don't write back. I need distance. And then, of course, he writes back. And he says the reason that he has bad boundaries is because he was molested as a kid. Like, what the fuck? That doesn't excuse him from raping me. I felt wretched being compared to Ian, and maybe I was wretched. I'm not trying to excuse what I did. It was wrong. And I don't think this excuses it. I looked at Lee, trying to figure out what she was thinking, looking for the smallest germ of forgiveness. I looked down again at the ugly sheets and mumbled, I just thought you might like to know where it was coming from. I won't bring it up again. Yeah, said Lee softly. It's better if you don't. She extended her long legs and lay down, pulling the comforter over her. She turned to face the wall. I'm going to sleep, she said. Good night, Ruth. How could she fall asleep at a moment like this? I listened to her breathing. It was slow and even. Even if she was pretending to sleep, how could she pretend to sleep at a moment like this? My mind was racing. I was angry at myself and angry at Ian and angry at Lee too, frustrated that she wouldn't forgive me. I opened the cancer journals and then closed it. I couldn't read. I quietly got up and walked into the living room. The lights were out. Sophia was sleeping down the hall. 
I sat down on the couch and turned on a lamp, and I saw a captain sitting on an ottoman, staring at me with sharp yellow eyes. He was a gray, long-haired cat, and he was big, bigger than I thought cats could be. Hi, Captain, I whispered. I patted the spot next to me on the couch. Captain! But he just stared at me, looking annoyed. Come on, Captain, I said, patting the spot one more time. Come be my friend. Captain dove gracefully off the ottoman and trotted to the couch, but he didn't hop up. He looked at me intensely for a moment and then walked away, climbed to the top of a bookcase, and stared out the window. That's it. Oh, thank you so much, Amy, for the reading and from the, the new work as well. And we're going to move into a Q&A period so you can ask Amy some questions and she may or may not answer them the way you like her to. Um, for those of you who are decking out, I just want to let you know that um, the next reading in our new writing series is going to be Wednesday, November the 17th, also at 5 p.m. What's that? November 20th, excuse me, thank you. This is why I need you in my life. Wednesday, November the 20th, Catherine Factor, the author of the Choose Your Own Adventure novel, Matahari, is going to be here doing an interactive Choose Your Own Adventure reading. So come back. And I'll bring Amy back up. Yes. Um, as it turns out, writing a novel is a whole different thing. I spent, I've been working on it for two years, and I spent the first six months writing the first 30 pages. That was a mistake. That's not how you do it. Um, so it was, it was very cool to teach myself. It felt like a totally new skill to write a novel. Um, and I had never done this before. Um, I had never had any kind of discipline. And I'm not apologizing. You know, I wrote Tender Points without any kind of discipline. It was just, oh, here's a fragment, here's a fragment. But I had to actually sit at a computer and try to write 1,000 or 2,000 or 3,000 words, depending on if I was, like, at my house or working or at a residency or whatever. But so that, that's the biggest difference. Yeah. Hello. Um, what would be your advice for someone who's trying to write their first novel as well? Because you mentioned that you've been working for two years and then that you were, for a long time, you were working on the first 30 pages. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that that's not the way to do it. Not the way to do it. So how, what would you say is the way to do it? So the way to do it... <laughs> <laughs> Um, also, like, I am, I am here for you. I'm going to answer your question to the best of my knowledge, but I figured this out by, like, Googling how to write a novel. So, like, <laughs> what, I, what I tell you right now is, like, coming from me Googling, but it worked. So what you need to do is really, like, okay, first you need to write an outline. <laughs> Got to figure out everything's going to happen. Um, and then when you, like, sit down to write, you really do have to make it try to write 2,000 words every time you sit down. And the main thing is the whole... You can't go back and revise. You just keep going, even if it's bad. 
like even if you can't figure out like a, a way to make a line sound good at all, just be like fix type fix this later. Um, so that's I, is that helping? Do you know how to write a novel now? That's like everything I know. <laughs> but I just don't be intimidated. Just do it. It'll be fine. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, small press. I think I'm ex small press expos, like just know, where I places. Saw, I saw pictures of you tabling and things like that. Yes. So, I mean, I feel like my tabling is pretty different from this. I have a whole other life as like a zine person and a, my own small press practice, Mondo Bummer, which is kind of like a mail art project that isn't, it's not quite a press. It's like a joke about a press, um, but I've tabled at zine fairs. Um, I'm not sure if I'm answering your question. Uh, I was just curious how, how you decide where to... I mean, I, there's the Bay Area where I live just has a bunch of great zine fairs. There's the East Bay Zine Fair, the San Francisco Zine Fest, um, and then, like, a bunch of, like, specific ones. There's just, like, a queer zine fair. There's a bunch of stuff. So just talking to friends and applying. I feel like this is a boring answer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, what I'm hearing is, you know, community. Yeah, community. Yeah, scene fairs are fun. Um, I think writing, my experience of writing the novel has been very liberating because, um, you know, Ruth and I have things in common. She also has fibromyalgia and she's also a survivor of childhood sexual assault. Um, but she's Ruth and I get, I just, writing Ruth gives me total freedom. You know, I can decide how things happen to her and her personality is a little different than mine. She has some of my worst impulses. Um, so yeah, I think there's like freedom. Yeah. You can use, I don't know, use things, but like you can be inspired by your own experiences, but get to explore them and play with them in ways that you never could with nonfiction. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> have you by any chance read the afterword yet? Good, because otherwise this, you'd know this already. Um, I have a pretty bad memory, so it's hard for me to like call up things on the spot, but everyone in this afterword, like, oh my God, so inspiring. Do you know Carolyn Lazard? She's great. Um, and then Cindy Anderson, um, I think I'm going to do an event with her in New York in January, I hope. Um, 
she's uh, the filmmaker who made The Punk Singer about Kathleen Hanna, and she's working on a film about Lyme disease called So Sick that's going to be amazing. Um, I'm really excited for that. Jennifer Brea's film, which I think is called Unrest, about uh, chronic fatigue is amazing. Um, and then Maya Dusenberry wrote a book called have it in here. It has a very long title. Doing Harm, the truth about how bad medicine and lazy science leave women dismissed, misdiagnosed, and sick. She's an amazing journalist, and that book is like a Bible of all the problems doctors cause with like um, specific interviews with patients who've experienced them. Um, And then finally, uh, I just had the pleasure of reading with Karen Balin, who wrote a book that came out like two days ago um, off of Wolfman Books in Oakland called Blackfishing the IUD, um, where she, it's exciting because it's the first book to take on the serious and ongoing health problems that some people have using the copper IUD. Um, It's like mostly just been discussed on online message boards, so it's really exciting that she's making it like legitimate. You know, I can, we can talk. Can I call on you? Yeah, I'm just wondering, um, as far as genres, where would you put it? Like, what's the difference between an illness narrative and a memoir, or do you know what I mean? Hmm. Um, well, I mean, I wouldn't really object to any, anyone calling this whatever. I mean, I had a conversation with the new publisher. It's like, well, what do you want it to say on the back? And he thought it should say poetry. And I'm like, no, I want it to escape the realms of poetry because only poets read poetry. Um, and so, so I got him to write lyric essay. And that's how I think about this. But it's often all, it's also often referred to as a memoir which, like, I think for a minute, I was like, ugh, a memoir. It sounds so, like, stuffy about some boring person's life. And, like, I don't... Anyway, but it's fine. It's a memoir. It's totally a memoir. Yeah. Um, I can identify with that, yeah. I think a lot of people can, you know, they think of memoir. Oh, I can't write one of those. Like, you know, who am I? Or, or just the associations in general. Totally. I never would have set out to be like, I'm writing my memoir. But, um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I went to grad school for poetry, and I hated it. I just told Cosm this on the car ride on the way here. Um, don't go to University of Michigan. You're not going to have a good time. Um, just remember this is being recorded. <laughs> so uh, I was trained as a poet, but I was so alienated from poetry by the time I finished school that I yeah, wrote poetry for a few more years, but I just, like, I, it wasn't, I just wasn't, wasn't getting anywhere. I wasn't that excited about what I was trying to write. Um, and then, you know, I, I have this interesting experience of like, I've always tried to figure out like, what the hell was that? Like, how is my trauma connected to my pain? And I finally felt ready to write about it. And I just, without thinking, started just like collecting these fragments of thoughts and quotes. Um, so that's how that happened. But I thought I was going to Michigan and I was going to be a poet and that was going to be what I did. Um, I'm working on a long poem 
called Gravitas about why I hated my grad program. Um, and my plan is that that will be the last poem I ever write. All prose. We'll see. Yes. Maybe a sort of personal and less writerly question, but something I've been thinking about lately in describing my own work. I feel like I have to reveal these deeply personal facts about myself that make people uncomfortable. And I'm wondering how you deal with that as you talk about your own work and if it ever feels like you want to talk about the sort of like big, vague words, not like name sexual trauma or name pain or something. No, I'm just laughing because about like a weird experience I had today that I don't need to get into. But um, <laughs> yeah, I. Or also like, how do you find the balance between revealing something personal but then also setting a boundary and not necessarily being open to further follow-up questions or something? Yeah, um, let me think about that for a second. Um, it's really hard for me not to tell you that I was abducted by my Lyft driver today. Be- I'm not kidding. Because he I was he asked me what my book was about and when I he was asking me tons of questions, which like I'm a pro, I don't mind. Like this is I'm used to talking about rape, it's cool. He seemed really comfortable, lots real curious, so uh he it was totally like okay until when he asked, Oh, did you name your abuser? in the book. And I was like, no, I chose not to, blah, blah, blah. And he was so upset that I didn't, that he freaked out. And then I was like, we need to stop talking about this. And he was like, then I can't take you to your destination. So I may not be the person right now to give you that advice because that's what just happened to me today. But usually, I just need to share that. Usually I think I'm a pretty good judge of what someone's comfortable hearing. And I'll just start broad. And then if they ask me questions, you know, and I tend to do a little like subtle content warning without calling it out as a content warning, like, hey, if, you know, you want to change the conversation anytime, like, that's okay. And yeah, I had a weird day. It's okay. I'm here. It, it'll come back. It always does. It does. Um, can you talk about your experience of um, like trying to write right through trauma and like write about trauma and getting to those um, like finding yourself in a space where you feel like okay, like now I'm ready and what that experience was like or um, was it kind of like. You know, I, I'm healed. I can write, like, I feel healed. I'm, like, in a place where I can confront this and write about this and um, the fragmented way that trauma happens or um, 
I'm asking because I feel like I've tried to write like into trauma, and I always feel like this is just like winding journal entries, so like boring, and then I kind of not like shut myself down. I just feel like um, there's no distance, and so it's really hard to um, to access that mm -hmm. like perspective in a way that's I don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes total sense. Um, so, like, I, you know, I had, you know, done some work processing all of this in therapy, like, right when I first recalled the memory and stuff. So I was sort of, like, ready as I'll ever be therapy-wise. Um, but it was still really scary. Um, I got into a car accident that we were all just banged up. Nobody was really hurt, but we totaled the car. We flipped the car. I was very surprised that we didn't die. And I, I mentioned this because, like, after that was the point where I was like, okay, tender points, got to write it. Like, I, I've been wanting to explore these connections for so long. So that's, like, when I was like, okay, I'm ready. Um, I guess, like, I just needed a near-death experience. I'm not recommending one. Um, but... So sorry. Um... <laughs> But what I think may be helpful is what I physically did in writing the book, which is that um, I think because I had all these like scraps of quotes and ideas, many of them from the internet, it felt natural to start writing in a Google Doc and just paste it, paste it, write some, paste it, paste it. But the nice result of that, one other nice result of that was then when I was writing like an entry in it that was like very scary for me to write, like the first time I described what happened with... Um, the man who assaulted me, um, I could just scroll up, just like enter, 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 just don't look at it, like just go to the next page. So I think you could try physically putting space between your writing and your pen, if that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to just try to think of the stuff that my husband does because at the point when I met him, I was like, all right, got to go back to dating, not men. And then I met this man actually at a zine fair. <laughs> um, so, um, and 
the reason that I can be with him is that he's he's big and he has a deep voice, but he just spends so much time making space for other people. Like, I, I don't know how to give a good example. Like, if he hears of an opportunity, he'll tell it to a woman friend, queer friend, person of color friend. Um, just, you know, promoting the work of women. Um, ju- yeah, just stepping back, being quiet. I mean, you know, I've never actually seen him be like, hey, bro, you're talking too much. But, I mean, you can do that. I'm not saying you should have stayed in the class, but... Like, that's also not your job to be like, hey, bro, you're talking too much in French lit class. But that's not a bad tactic. Um, I actually, I considered that for a second. And I felt like I'm using my male power to have the other male shut up. And it's, I, I feel like I wanted to not do that. Um, I mentioned this to my friends, and they, they said the same thing. I think I was just specifically there. I didn't want to use my, you know. Yeah, you don't, you don't have to do that. I'm just trying to run through some ideas with you. Hello. Hi. Thanks for coming. Thanks. Uh, I'm still trying to work through the way I'm going to ask these questions. I'm just like not sure, but it'll come out the way it comes out, I guess. There's a part in your uh, a portion of the novel you're, you're reading out of. Um, where you talk about um, your family understanding, the family of character understanding the character through the lens of their their condition, and like you said, the way it was, the way, the way you said it was like sort of like uh, they didn't understand the condition, so they didn't understand the person. Mm. I was wondering how how like the correlation was, like how one to one the like understanding the person versus the condition would be. It's mm. so, like. At what point do you say this is the condition of this is a person or this is like just something that's a feature of the person that you should understand, but it doesn't like define the person? I, yes, I can answer that. that. Um, I was hoping this would be clear, but like I said, it's a work in progress. So any feedback is great. Um, What I meant when I said that was that Ruth needed her parents to understand her disability because her disability was an essential facet of her identity. And so without that missing piece, they couldn't really understand her identity. If that makes sense. Okay. So the question is where to submit work for publication? Yeah, actually, yeah. just any tips at the beginning. Yeah, um, what I recommend, because I prefer it, but you can do whatever you want, and there's no wrong answer, is I prefer like just getting to know small, local, or maybe not local, maybe on the internet, but for me, like just small presses that are just starting out, scrappy stuff that your friends run, or starting your own press, and just submitting, you know, you might not even have to submit, um, just publishing your stuff that way, because I think it's a really big drain of time and energy to submit things on submittable to magazines that take six months to never reply to you. Um, so I would say like, yeah, just 
take the means of production and just start your own press or convince your friend to do it. What you should do is you should start a press and your friend should start a press and then you can publish each other. Because that looks a lot better than if you start. Okay. <laughs> uh, I love hearing about the Google Doc and about kind of assembling the manuscript in bits and pieces. Um, but of course, at some point, you made um, an aesthetic decision or some kind of decision to leave the book in in pieces mm -hmm. to allow it to unfold that way, to not write coherence into it. So I'm curious to know, you know, when in the writing process it occurred to you, the form occurred to you, and what, maybe what meant, went into that, uh, what went into that decision, whether it was you know, purely aesthetic or whether there was like a, a greater um, drive behind the, what the shape of the book ended up being. Yeah, I think it never occurred to me that it would be unfragmented. Like it, when I set out writing, you know, I set out writing and I was like, I'm putting things in a doc. But at no point was I like, at some point, it'll be like this coherent essay with a beginning, middle, and an end. Um, and a couple of things. One, um, the poet Stephanie Young was really, really helpful to me in writing this book. And she came over to my house, and I made her dinner. And she sat with me on the floor, and we cut out all the pieces and taped them together. So it was a very like physical process of fragments. And you could tell that they needed to be fragments. Like... It would just, you know, so I think it, I had to write a description of the book, and I think it said something like, I don't remember what it said, but just like tra trauma is fragmented, and like the honest way to write about trauma is in fragments, because we don't remember these things from beginning to end, and this is what it feels like um, to have pain and to have trauma. So, yeah. I'm going to give you a hug later. Okay. Well, first off, thank you for coming out. Thank you. And um, so, so earlier you mentioned uh, in, the, uh, in, your, in the small list of your various, um, uh, of your various uh, inspirations, uh, you mentioned, I forget which topic it was, but you mentioned that you know, uh, the whole idea of one of the people that was taking what was once relegated just to internet uh, message boards and actually mm -hmm, turning mm -hmm. that into a proper yes. conversation. So I, I was curious as to you know, what your opinion is in, uh, as to that idea of you know, turning the internet into a valid source for conversations or rather the idea of the internet not being a valid source for you know proper conversations of real things. I think that's a really big and interesting question that has an answer that's much bigger than what I can tell you about my corner of it, but uh, okay, so basically, the question of the internet, is it a legitimate source for information? 
more specifically, what I'm looking at and what Karen Balin, the author of Black Fishing, the IUD, is looking at is um, are women's voices on forums in the internet talking about their health problems that aren't uh, commonly believed to exist in Western medicine a real source of accurate information? And it's so interesting. Something we I just did like a radio inter- podcast interview with her, um, and one thing we talk about is like just any doctor would make fun of you and ridicule you for saying, well, you know, I, I read about this, um, whatever supplement on a message board. They would just be like, Oh my God, stop reading the internet. Like that's what they tell you. Um, however, like message boards are where a lot of empirical medicine is being practiced. Like there is no other place to learn that X, Y, Z supplement is actually the only thing that will help you with X, Y, Z symptom. So, does that answer your question? Can I answer it more? Yes, you can. I mean, like, <laughs> is, I mean, yeah. I, 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 I find that answer satisfactory. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, her book is great. Yeah. that's such a common question not just for me but for everyone writing about trauma and I don't even know um like I needed to write this book like I really needed to write it and but I don't think writing it was the healing part I think the healing part is what I talked about in the afterward of like oh like I needed to write this so I could go out and find you and so I could have conversations like this like this feels healing talking about it feels healing um I feel like I had something else to say. Oh, and the novel. What is it about the novel? Writing fiction? Control? Just having control over it. Yeah, I mean, I think for me, writing. Like. How do I explain? Yeah, I mean, I think that was definitely a motivating factor. I think just writing about topics that are as sensitive as rape and betrayals of well-meaning friends after rape um, just needs to be fictional. sort of thing that has like 
I feel like all of those things should be looked into. Like a lot of those things have merit to them. I remember one time I was actually watching like a Reddit comment thing on YouTube, and I found out that I might have a quote unquote disease called like visual snow. Yeah, it's a thing where like your eyesight is actually thrown off by how vision is like seen, and it has like many, many different, you guys can actually look that up. Like if you, it's something, something around like the prefrontal cortex or something like that where like sometimes I'll just hear random ringing and apparently it's all linked together. So apparently I have some weird disease. It's like one of the hundred. And the other thing, the actual question is in the poetry part, I know you're trying to break off from poetry, but like in your writing, did you ever learn like the difference between like a chat book and like just a collection of poems? Can you tell me that? I love that this is where you came to get that answer. Um. <laughs> uh, chat books are shorter. It's like um, like an EP and an LP. It's like it has like three songs on it versus like twelve songs, or it has like twenty-five pages versus like sixty pages. And chat books, I think, often are put out by smaller presses, like the one that your friend here is going to start and your friend's going to publish you. Um, and so, yeah, just shorter, often put out by smaller, more accessible presses. And then sometimes you'll wind up where like you wrote a bunch of chapbooks and then someone offers to publish a full length book and they want to include a whole chapbook in it. That sometimes happens. You did. <laughs> Thanks everyone for coming out, and books are on sale outside, come next month for Choose Your Own Adventure. Thank you, Nina. Thank you, Library. Thank you, Amy.